It has already been a blessed occasion, hasn't it, to assemble and to gather tonight in the midst of so many distractions and things in this world that, quite frankly, are troublesome to the Christian, and yet we can assemble with those of like precious faith, to borrow the wording of 2 Peter 1 verse 1, and to give appreciation to those matters that are certainly of most great eternal import. You probably have already noticed not only what's on the wall behind me, but perhaps what was also in the bulletin, that we're going to begin a series of lessons this evening, a series that, quite frankly, will touch a number of facets and attributes of the work of the Holy Spirit. As we seek to do that, this opening slide will be one that opens, or at least presents, what will be a number of the particulars it'll be our desire to consider at one point or another. As you give thought to that slide, my idea was to simply raise, as much as anything, a number of questions. I'm sure you have perhaps commented about it as often as has any other Christian. So what exactly is the nature of the Holy Spirit? What does He do? How does He do it? Does He indwell Christians personally? In what way does He have connection to the Word of God? Does He work miraculously today? And on and on the questions seem to go. In fact, it perhaps would not be at all unfair to say that many many of the greatest misunderstandings touching the Word of God will directly relate in one way or another to the Holy Spirit. I might also say that this series will quite likely be lengthy. And by that I mean just touching each of them, if I devote one lesson to each one, it may ultimately carry us through a number of Sundays. It will not be continuous, I might also say. We'll slide in some questions and answers, and we have a gospel meeting, of course, soon to come. We may be well into June before we finish this, but be that as it may, it'll be our goal, our desire, to let the Word of God speak to us. As we do that, let me use this opening lesson, if I could, to more than anything lay some foundational work. In an effort to do that, you'll notice at the bottom of the slide, you'll notice we have the opportunity to give thought to many passages. There are well over 200 direct references to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And that's not even counting the indirect ones. So in fact, you and I have enough material to last probably throughout this whole year if we would wish to divide it so. That'll not be my goal, I might say. And so it is. What might you and I say about the Holy Spirit? This next slide will begin our discussion by at least highlighting somewhat of its significance. As you and I consider the importance of the work itself. Isn't it amazing that God the Father has gotten a great deal of attention, and rightly so. And God the Son has gotten a great deal of attention, and again, rightly so. But quite frankly, the attention the Holy Spirit has gotten has, in many cases, been rather greatly different, quite often misdirected. Consider this with me. In the mind of some, the very mention of the Holy Spirit brings more questions than it does answers. Maybe it's the case that even you and I, those who treasure and highly revere the Word of God, if someone were to ask us for at least a brief discussion and synopsis of the Holy Spirit, we might struggle. We might find it difficult to put into a few sentences our basic beliefs. Well, let's see if we can do some justice to those matters and at least obtain a richer appreciation for the Holy Spirit over the course of this series of studies. You'll notice about the top of that slide, 
it's quite likely true, at least if you look at many of the writings that touch the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of a book that was published not many years ago that was entitled The Mystery of the Holy Spirit. And for some, that's about as far as it goes. They are at least in such a position of mystery. They understand little of what the Spirit does or how He does it, and they are somewhat content, maybe without going much further than that. I know that doesn't describe you or me, but nonetheless, the thought of mystery seems often connected with the Holy Spirit. Could it well be in light of that connection? Look at the bottom, at least to highlight some of the goals, perhaps, of this series. Goals I've tried to highlight like this. I would submit that if the Bible does reveal things about the Holy Spirit, and it does, then it is our desire to appreciate that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And if that includes the Holy Spirit, and it does, then that means we would be expected by God to have a degree of understanding and correct understanding touching that marvelous subject. In addition to that, don't we read in Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, that every word of God is tried... And that word tried highlights the beautiful attribute that it is direct and it is not only powerful, but it's trustworthy. And therefore, surely if there are 200 references directed to the Holy Spirit, it would behoove us to appreciate what is set forth in those references. One final thing on that slide. Given what we're about to see shortly, we're discussing God as we describe the Holy Spirit. And the very nature of describing God is truly fantastic, it's remarkable, it's profound, because He truly is awesome. With that said, let's proceed to the next slide. There has been quite a bit of error set forth as it relates to the Holy Spirit. It'll be our goal not to focus on that, of course, but to try to use the Word of God to help set in our heart what is wrong about those ideas and to not fall prey to them. For that reason, look at this one. You and I desire to understand the Word of God because we're told we can understand it. Ephesians 3 verse 4. Jesus said, "Ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John 8 32. Coupling those ideas with this. Might I say that you and I would never wish then to be prey to those errors, but we'd like to understand them so that we too could guide ourselves and help guide others into the pathways of truthfulness. All of that with a degree of preparation leads to one final thought. May I suggest to you, in light of what I have been able to ascertain concerning this, many, many, of the most prevalent errors in religious doctrine, in one way or another, have had connection to the Holy Spirit. Be that in relation to tongue speaking, be that in relation to the miraculous supposed character today, be that in relation to the various hopes attached to what's involved in service, in some way much of it, in one way or another, connects to the Holy Spirit. For that reason, you and I desire to lift high the banner of this truth. As always, then bring your Bible with you. And let's use some Sunday nights in the weeks to come 
to learn more about the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, I chose the title of this series, The Communion of the Holy Spirit. Taken directly from the wording of 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, did you notice there that all three members of the Godhead are mentioned in that one verse? And that leads me to the next slide. It begins like this. This phrase, Godhead, I know that it too may appear a bit mysterious. It may appear on the surface to be more or less confusing. But may you and I be removed from any such confusion. What is meant by the word Godhead? Could I suggest the word occurs in Colossians 2 verse 9 because there it says that with regard to Christ, in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So notice the fullness of the Godhead is mentioned. Suggestive of those entities, those beings comprising it. And yet of them, the one that dwelt bodily was the Christ. Now that alone teaches us much. But could you and I perhaps notice it like this? The last four letters of that word Godhead, may I suggest, are somewhat reminiscent of and also rather suggestive of a four-letter suffix that we often use in the English language. I've listed a number of examples for your consideration. For instance, one might make reference to manhood, as a young boy continues his growth and maturity, the time may come that one may comment he has reached manhood. And by the same token, one could refer to a young lady who in her growth reaches womanhood. May I say that if a lady's husband has passed away, she may be said to have arrived into widowhood. I think we each understand well what all such phrases mean. They identify, as I've tried to state on the slide, using the very idea of the definition. This suffix hood identifies a state. It identifies a condition. It has reference to a quality or a character. To say that differently than that man that has reached manhood, this male has now arrived at that stage in life in which his condition is that of a man. His state is that of a man. And by the same token, that woman whose husband has died, if she is now described as being in widowhood, she now occupies a condition or state in which her husband is deceased. Now those ideas are relatively easy to note, aren't they? But with that in mind, note this. The word Godhead connects directly to Godhood. And therefore to use that identifies beings, if you please, who dwell in the condition of or in the state of God. The connection seems easy in light of the way we usually at least use that suffix hood. But notice this, in essence then Godhood would refer and Godhead would refer to that which makes God, God. No wonder then we have some beautiful things to discuss as we give connection to the Holy Spirit. The next idea simply being this one. May I invite your attention to, quite frankly, the opening proclamations of the Bible. The very first chapter in the first book, Genesis chapter 1. In that chapter, you and I encounter almost immediately something that is so deserving of attention. In the beginning, the opening verse says, 
God made heaven and earth. In the beginning, God made heaven and earth. He created, if you please, the heavens and the earth. Those ideas seem so direct and straightforward, but have you and I noticed, perhaps as we ought, that that word that's translated God is plural. It isn't singular. It's plural. Hear me again. Now, that was before man was created. It was before it would appear the other attributes of either the angelic beings were created. Who else was there? Who may have God been talking to? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and yet the subject is plural. I've asked you to notice several other verses along that line as well. May I invite you to note chapter 1, verse 26. Now, frankly, a number of the elements of creation had been created by this time, but nonetheless, he says, let us create man in our image. Who's the us? Clearly, it wasn't any animal. The animals didn't create anything. Clearly, it wasn't even man because man didn't create anything. Whoever the us is, it has connection to that which had creative capability. Let us make man in our image. In chapter 3 of the same book, verse 22, this was after, of course, the sin of Adam and Eve. And nonetheless, the statement has a plural character to it. One more time, the reference is easily to God in one way or another. One final one would be chapter 11, verse 7. This time it's the Tower of Babel. It wasn't it true that God said, let us go down and confound their language. One more time, it's plural. Us? Let us go down and confound their language? I suspect then in light of all of those things, we are beginning to gain this appreciation. These plural references identify then that there is more than one being with the attributes of God, more than one being involved in Godhood, more than one being that is such that He possesses that which makes God, God. No wonder in light of that, as you and I close that slide, might we note this. It's at this point that many have thus made the conclusion, so is there then more than one God? If these plural pronouns like us and we and Elohim, which again is plural in the Hebrew, if all of that's indicative of more than one, then are we saying there's more than one God? And the answer is no. Again, we couldn't claim that and be consistent with the Word of God. In both Old and New Testament, God is said to be one. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Didn't Paul say it like this in Ephesians 4, verse number 6? After saying that there's one body and one spirit and one hope, and after saying furthermore that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, he ends that list of seven by saying there is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And so you and I rest a great deal of our appreciation on the oneness of, of God. But yet, isn't it interesting that we've thus seen verses that indicate a plurality and verses that nonetheless speak of unity, of oneness. As you and I develop that thought more thoroughly, it leads us to the, some of those matters that follow, namely these. Isn't it true then that 
you and I can put those together in a consistent way like this. There's more than one being that has the attributes of God. More than one being, if you please, that can rightly be referred to as God. And yet, as the Bible refers to each of them, and I've listed a few verses for our consideration, there is God the Father, uniformly described in language consistent with that. And you may notice in John 20, verse 17, as the Master Jesus prayed, He referred our Father. He referred to Him that way. Furthermore, in Romans 1, verse 7, as Paul addressed the church at Rome, he explicitly referred to God the Father. Maybe one final example would be 2 Corinthians 1, verse 2, early in that inspired epistle. Paul also calling attention to the Father, and he would quickly say, He is the Father or God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 5. The beauty of that consideration, the richness of it, only leads us to note God the Son. He too, again, is called the Lord. He too is referred to in verses, just a few of which I've chosen. For instance, in Luke 1.32, even at the scene when again Mary was being addressed, she was shortly to give birth to this one who was recognized as the Son of the Highest. The Highest referred to the Father, but here was the Son of the Highest. But He was quickly identified both in the Old and the New Testament as being on an equal footing with God. He is fellow Jehovah. What a beautiful thought. Other verses that bring us to that consideration, Hebrews 1 verse 8. Early in the Hebrew letter, the inspired writer in setting forth the splendor and the greatness of Christ over against the angels, one more time he was referred to as the capital S-O-N, the Son of God, the Father. In 1 John 5 verse 20, He, that's the Christ, is explicitly called God. So one more time, here is a being separate from the Father that has every right, and deservedly so, to be called God. But there's another. What about the Spirit? You may recall that in Ephesians 4 verse 4 it was said there's one Spirit. But look at some of these references. In Genesis 1 verse 2, remember before anything else was created, Continuing that verse that we noted earlier, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is what is next referenced. So again, long before there was anything like man or animal or anything else, there was the Spirit. But with the thought of that Spirit, Matthew 3.16 reminds us, at the scene of the Master's baptism. Wasn't it true that the Father was mentioned because He spoke, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But yet, the Father was distinct from Jesus because He was the one being baptized by John. But the Spirit was also mentioned because He descended in the form of a dove. All three of them referenced, and all three of them there, but yet distinct on that occasion. The remarkable unity that they nonetheless appreciate in our heart will be a development throughout this series. Maybe one final observation in Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, notice again how that in that passage He is called God. 
It was the inspired Peter who, in fact, presented the idea like this. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira had sold some property, kept back part of the money, but gave a different connotation. They gave a different sense. As Peter confronted Ananias, he said, You've lied to God. But in the very next breath, he said, You lied to the Holy Spirit. And thus, the Holy Spirit must be God. Another element, another member of the Godhead, if you please. It is the case with respect to all of them. Three beings possess the attributes of deity. But yet as we give thought to their possession of those attributes, isn't it remarkable the unity that they present, the oneness that is in their mission? Much will have to be said about that in lessons to come. For right now, let's go ahead and note one final and great matter. In our lesson this evening, it will occupy us for much of the rest of the time tonight. The nature of the Holy Spirit. Many ships of discussion run aground at this point. So what is the nature of the Holy Spirit? If you and I could settle that in our heart at this moment and help others to settle that same point, much of the nonsense and much of the confusion that touches this subject would vanish instantly. It begins like this. I've asked you to notice some of the designations or descriptions that have been given concerning the Holy Spirit. The Watchtower publication, and you and I know them well as the main publishing warehouse of the, of the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, from their publication, they describe the Holy Spirit as the active force of God. Keep that in mind if you would. Another publication, this time drawing from the sources of Mormonism, from Joseph Smith and others along that line. May I ask you to note, and I quote, the Holy Spirit is identified as a force like electricity and magnetism. What do you think about that? To liken the Holy Spirit to electricity. To liken the Holy Spirit to magnetic repulsion or attraction. Hold that in mind if you would. Thirdly, it's not unusual to find descriptions of and references to the Holy Spirit as some sort of a divine fluid, a divine influence, a divine power, or a divine force. Now I realize from the perspective of physics, much can be said about force and defining it, and much can be said about power and giving a clear mathematical description of it. And in all of these instances, you and I are noticing the human family, on one way or another, has chosen to liken the Spirit, Holy Spirit that is, to these kinds of entities. May you and I distance ourselves from that kind of thinking. Let me invite you to note this. The Holy Spirit, as you and I have seen already tonight, is a divine person is a divine being. And that alone will remove so much of the connected confusion that seems to surround this subject. After all, you and I would never refer to God the Father as electricity. We'd never refer to God the Son as magnetic attraction or repulsion or anything like it. But yet the human family, in a rather sad way admittedly, 
has chosen to identify the Spirit. And maybe the human family has struggled with any description that it seems appropriate. But may I suggest in all such occasions, we just need to let the Bible do the speaking and not use any other words than it if we can't come up with any that do it justice. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. Could I redirect your attention to the text that was read earlier tonight? In the closing verse of the 2 Corinthians letter, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. As Paul had reached the concluding observation and the finality of this beautiful epistle, he said this, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. That's one of those verses in which all three of the members of the Godhead are listed. And you notice that as they're listed, we would never have any confusion or doubts about the first one. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for the grace of Christ. We appreciate the system of teaching He's revealed. And quite frankly, we relish and thrill in the thought of it. Now what's next? The love of God. We sometimes sing a song in our book. It's entitled, The Love of God. We thrill at the thought of it. We appreciate that love prompted the Father to dispatch the Son to this earth. And He went to Calvary for you and for me. There seemingly is little, if any, misunderstanding at all, at least about the facts of the first two. The love of God, the grace of Christ. But suddenly when we come to the third one, the communion of the Holy Spirit... And the train runs off its track. And the discussions seemingly go off on tangents. And there is much ado, speculation if you will, that has led men to go in directions that are quite frankly rather unbiblical. The word commune identifies fellowship. Paul wished and in fact ordered the church at Corinth to relish in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you and I today are in no different situation at all, at least in the principle of that. We too then ought not be languishing in the mystery of the Spirit, but to understand there's a very real fellowship to understand, to appropriate, and to utilize. I hope then that throughout this series we can try to do that. At that point, let's note one more thing. The little one chapter of of Jude In the 20th verse of that chapter, second to the last book in the New Testament, this little reference to the Holy Spirit is found. And just as surely as the communion of the Spirit was highlighted earlier, in this instance we have this rather impressive statement. I know that each of us are aware of the insistence of the Bible and the necessity of applying it appropriately to us. Listen to this. As Jude wrote this letter, he said, But ye, beloved building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God. Those individuals to whom Jude wrote, they surely would have appreciated the need to keep themselves in the love of God, for that's what Jude exactly said. But just before that he said, pray in the Holy Spirit. I wonder, should you and I have an interest in that? If so, how? How is it done? We'll settle that as this series proceeds onward. But may I suggest we should have a keen interest and a delightful insight 
into the work of the Spirit. As we close this slide, look at a number of references. Turn back with me to the book of John. Of the four gospel accounts, John, more so than the others, puts before our mind the following truth, the following understanding, and how keen it really is. While you're turning to John chapters 14 and following, I'd like to settle in all of our hearts the setting, the context, if you please, that surrounds those verses. You and I remember that Jesus was crucified. When did these events of John chapters 14 and following take place? Maybe you and I can note this. It was the scene in which the Lord had met with His apostles. It was the night before He was crucified. He had just celebrated the Passover with them, and right after that, instituted the Lord's Supper. And you may recall, He went out to the Mount of Olives that night after they sang a hymn. And during the course of the, the great series of events, Jesus shared some remarkable truths with them. Aren't you impressed to think then about the night before He was crucified, He had so much to say about the Holy Spirit. I'm only going to select a few of the verses and ask you to note them with me. But we'll begin in John 14, verses 16 and 17. Jesus said, I will pray the Father that He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. And the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but ye know Him, for He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Jesus knew He was about to leave. He was going to ascend back to heaven not too many weeks away. And He was going to be crucified again on the very next day. Oh, how the hearts of those apostles would have been greatly troubled. And they would in fact have been greatly agitated. Our leader is gone and we just watched Him be crucified. In that very connection, Jesus promised them, Look, the Father is going to send you a comforter. Did you notice what He called the comforter? He said in verse 17, Even the Spirit of truth. Let's read on, holding those thoughts in mind. In John 16, verse number 13. I'm sorry, John 14, verse 26. John 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. Now notice in English, that's an appositive. As you and I might recall from our study of English grammar, that means that that appositive identifies that which is being asserted by virtue of the noun that just precedes it. So with the words comforter, he says, that is the Holy Spirit. So in other words, in verse 16, when he said, I'm going to pray to the Father, they'll send you the comforter. But we're now being told the comforter was and is the Holy Spirit. Thus, when you and I see the word comforter, we should think Holy Spirit. Not only that, turn over to John 16 now. In verse number 13, again, words spoken by Jesus on that same fateful evening. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak. And He will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. 
At that point, you and I might notice, during the course of these words we've just referenced, and I've tried to read them with directness, did you notice something interesting? As the Lord referred to the Spirit, how did He do it? Now remember, earlier we had man on some occasions referring to Him like electricity, or like magnetism, or like force, or like power. Is that consistent with the Lord's usage? I noticed that Jesus referred to Spirit. He referred to Comforter. But then as He made use of pronouns, understandable of those things, isn't this what He did? He referred to Him as He. Him. Jesus never referred to the Holy Spirit as It. But let's face it, things like magnetism and electricity, now that might be an It. It's something that's inanimate, but the Spirit is not. There alone, doesn't that remind us that who better ought to know than Jesus? And He referred to the Spirit as a Him. The Spirit is a divine personality, a divine being, a divine person. Five times He uses either He or Him in John 15, verses 16 and following. Nine times He used the word He or Himself in John 16, verse 13. And every one of them is masculine. Thus, may we never refer to the Spirit as it. May we never refer to it as something that would in fact be inconsistent with a him, a he, a masculine divine being. At that point, isn't it interesting that these thoughts perhaps lead us to highlight this from yet another vantage point? If it's the case, and it was, that the Spirit was identified as a He, as a Him, as a divine person, then shouldn't it be consistent to appreciate then that the Spirit would be able to do and accomplish that which a person under appropriate circumstances would also be able to accomplish? I listed several particulars. Let's look at them one by one. Every one of us agree that a person can speak. God has endowed us with the capability of language and communication. And if the Holy Spirit is a divine person, should it be surprising that He too would be capable of communication? Listen to 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Doesn't that indicate the Spirit speaketh? The verse says that that's what He did. The Spirit speaks. Again, notice the power and majesty of that which this divine person has accomplished. What about the second one? You and I know that manhood, those who are individuals, can teach. Does the Spirit teach? May I invite your attention to 1 Corinthians 2.13, where there we learn that in the same way, that you and I do not know what's in the mind of men unless they tell us, so too we're told we cannot know what's in the mind of God unless we're told, and it says, things which the Holy Ghost teacheth. So the Holy Spirit teaches. Doesn't that sound like a divine personality, a divine being, a divine person? Thirdly, human beings can send. Maybe you give instructions or orders for someone to carry out an instruction. Have you ever thought about Acts 13, 4? The Holy Spirit sent Paul and Barnabas 
on that first missionary journey, the Holy Spirit sent. He carried out the activity of sending. Three times things which an individual, a person can do, the Holy Spirit has done. Number four, what about forbidding? All of us as parents know very well what it's like to forbid a child to do something. You know it's not in their best interest, and you know that it's not healthful for them. Aren't you impressed in Acts 16.6 when the Holy Spirit forbade Paul from a certain aspect of a journey which he intended to make? One more time, the Spirit was involved in an activity we would attach to a person, a divine person. Number five, searching and knowing. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 11 and 12, point out that the Spirit searches the deep things of God and reveals those things to us. What again has the Spirit done? He searched and He made known to those who would be keenly interested in knowing what it was He discovered. In the sixth place, helping. Aren't you thankful for this one? It directly says in Romans 8, 26, The Spirit helpeth our infirmities. There's a sense in which you and I are keenly needful of the help of the Spirit in connection with prayer. It makes note in that verse, the Spirit helps us. Aren't we thankful for that? Number seven, love. Romans 15, 30 points out the love of the Spirit. Now again, that seems to be distinct from the very love of the Father or the love of the Son. But it's the love of the Spirit that's so beautifully highlighted. Maybe it's true that as that love is pointed out there, we'll have the lovely occasion to revisit that in its context and look at that somewhat later in the series. Number eight. What do you think about this one? To be lied to. Now, I know none of us like to be lied to, but the fact does remain you can lie to a person. Can you lie to the Holy Spirit? Ananias did it. Remember, he lied to the Spirit, Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. And as you give thought to that idea again, isn't it clear then that we have a divine person under discussion? Number nine, to be grieved. May I invite your attention to this one? You and I know about grief. There are things that others can do that break our heart. It brings sorrow and grief to our person. A tree doesn't grieve. A rock doesn't grieve. But yet, Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, The Holy Spirit grieves. By the way, He grieves over your sins and mine. When you and I choose to do things inappropriate, sinful, and disobedient, it brings grief to the Holy Spirit. One more time, though, doesn't that at the very least indicate He is a divine person? Not an it, not a force, not a power. At least only those things. Perhaps two more. Insulted. In Hebrews 10 verse 29, on that occasion, we read about the direct presentation that the Spirit can be insulted. Now, we know persons can be insulted. Maybe you and I have been on the receiving end of that many times. It's hurtful. But the fact remains, the text says that even the Holy Spirit can be insulted. 
One more time, may I suggest, in context, he feels that way. He responds that way when those trample underfoot the blessed gift of the Son. One more time, what about being resisted? Can you resist the Holy Spirit? You notice in Acts 7, verse 50, Stephen, and on that marvelous sermon, rather directly preached, you, he said, have resisted the Holy Spirit. And of course, we remember, very sadly, that that brought about Stephen's death. They martyred him on that occasion. I'd submit as we come near the close of our lesson tonight, we have reached a magnificent, a profound conclusion. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. I hope I have at least given us some things to consider to solidify in our heart that so much of the descriptions of the Spirit that man has chosen to use are unfitting. They're inappropriate. They, quite frankly, either fall very far short or they're rather strongly misdirected. It is with that in mind, we'll close our lesson like this. We have begun a series of studies on the Holy Spirit. As a part of tonight's lesson, at least, we've cast a spotlight on the importance of the thought because the Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead, those again which possess Godhood, and as such, we've learned that the Holy Spirit is in fact a divine personality, a divine person who has all the capabilities of what we've studied tonight, able to do those things a person can do and feel. This evening, as we have reached the end of this lesson at least, I hope it only prepares us for what's yet to come. Studying the Holy Spirit. All those questions I raised at the outset, it wasn't my intent to trouble your heart. We're going to let the Bible address all of them in due course. And in so doing, to learn much, I suppose, about the Holy Spirit. Suffice it to say, the Spirit has revealed the will of God to you and me. And you and I hold that majestic revelation in our hand. Have you obeyed it? If you have, if you've become a Christian and you have known the sweetness of what it offers and the blessings that it proffers, may I suggest, if you have walked away from that, for whatever may have been the matter, don't you realize the Spirit has been grieved by what you've done and He wants you to return to faithfulness? If we could help you in that way tonight... It's not our goal to simply present our idea, but that's unimportant. But what the Spirit has revealed is important. And the Spirit says you need to repent of those sins and confess them. And if you invite us to pray to God on your behalf, He will be delighted to assist in carrying those through the mediator to none other than the Father. Tonight, if we can help you in doing that, it'd be our charge, it'd be our delight. If you'd like to become a Christian, though, to know what it's like to be a child of God. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and submit to baptism for the remission of your sins. If tonight we could be of assistance to you, we invite you to come now while together we stand and sing.